Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 510 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And I want to give a special thank you to Chip Hauser, who just gave the book a five-star review on Amazon.com. It says, This is an excellent collection. Kirtley's stories are each unique, and each is exquisitely crafted. His plotting is clean and intentional. He is familiar with the history of the genres and makes clever plays on many tropes. He constantly surprises with unexpected turns and resolutions and his prose is infused throughout with thoughtful observations and good humor. This book reads like a collection of classic science fiction and fantasy, and bonus horror, that I've somehow missed for decades. Reading them filled me with the joy of discovery, that sense of wonder that can be hard to find in fiction. Each story drew me in, and I didn't want to stop reading. Save Me Please also manages to feel fresh, open-minded, and hopeful. It's masterful, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So big thanks again to Chip Hauser for that great review. And our guest today is Ben Burgess. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Tor.com and Giganotosaurus, on podcasts such as Podcastle and Starship Sofa, and in books such as People of the Book, A Decade of Jewish Science Fiction and Fantasy. He also teaches philosophy at Rutgers University, hosts the podcast Give Them an Argument, and writes a regular column for Jacobin Magazine. And we'll be speaking with him today about his career as a fantasy author, and about his nonfiction books Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, A Critique of the Contemporary Left, and Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. And now here's our interview with Ben Burgess. All right, so we're here with Ben Burgess. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Okay, so how did you get interested in fantasy and science fiction? Uh... I guess growing up, I mean, it's it's stuff that my dad read a lot, you know, so it was always around the house. I mean, that's probably not a very interesting answer, but that's probably the honest one. So, like, what kind of stuff was around the house? Uh, I mean, there's a pretty there's a pretty broad range. Um, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think like specifically, but uh, like I don't know. I mean, I can remember like Harry Harrison, like some of those books. Uh, you know, some of those books being there. Um, you know, Robert Asprey. I can also remember some classic stuff like Heinlein, things like that. You know, so I mean, it, it was always uh, it was always kind of around from pretty early on. Actually, Robert Asprey was my favorite author when I was in elementary school. So I talk about that. Oh, that's. Nice. So, like the myth books with Robert Asprin, or did you re- read any of his other stuff? Uh, okay, the myth books for sure. I actually did read a little bit of other stuff. Uh, that was I'm trying to think. Um, there was a There's book, like F- Fool's Company. Yes, yes, yes. Fool. That's right. Yeah, I, I think I actually read several of those. I remember that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, Fool- all, they all they all had variations of fool puns in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, that's really cool. And so, were you uh, were you ever thinking like, oh, I would want to write fantasy and science fiction? Or, uh, yeah, I, I did it. I did it for a point as um, you know. I, I remember having that thought as a kid, and then I didn't for a long time. And then, like, kind of in my 
you know, it wasn't really until like my mid twenties that I, I kind of picked it up again. So what, what was that like? Like what form did that take when you picked it up again? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think, um, yeah. So short stories, uh, I had, um, you know, I, I think that I was, you know, I'm trying to remember this was a while ago, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think when I started writing again, I mean, it was, um, you know, it was more like, you know, here's a specific, you know, specific idea for something that it kind of hit me. I think that I had, uh, I had been reading, um, the, uh, you know, Robert Anton Wilson, and that was kind of on my mind a little bit and the, like kind of the format in which it wasn't one of the Illuminatus trilogy books, but it was like a related thing. It also had Illuminati. It was like Mass of the Illuminati. That was the book I remember. And I remember thinking like it was a sort of weird experimental format, but I remember it made me kind of think like, oh, um, I could do something like this and it might be fun. And that sort of led to the first short story that I was writing again uh, as an adult. And then, you know, and then I kind of, um, you know, I, I took off from there. Uh, I should, uh, I should say also that my, you know, that my older sister is a writer and had been, and that was, um, you know, and she was very encouraging about this and, um, and like, then I, like science fiction or other, other stuff. Uh, yeah. So she, she writes like middle grade fantasy books. Okay, cool. So, um, and and then that so yeah this is like 2005 and i had uh uh and that i actually went to uh the uh clarion west uh writers workshop the the next summer so what was your clarion experience like oh it was great i mean it was like um very uh <laughs> uh you know, I mean, it was like intense and not a lot of sleep, but it was good. It was, it was really, uh, it was really fun. Like, I feel like I've got, you know, I got a lot better over the, over the course of it. I mean, I, you know, I had a, I had a blast, you know, like it was, um, yeah, I mean, like, and, and I feel like, uh, you know, I, I feel like I got out of it what, what, what you would hope to get out of it, you know, from sort of like being pretty intensely immersed in that for six weeks and getting like, feedback on such an ongoing basis and, you know, just kind of eating, sleeping and breathing it for, you know, several weeks and like sort of in terms of like kind of hitting a certain kind of breakthrough, you know, writing, uh, writing things that were maybe like a little bit different from some of what I've written before in ways that, you know, ways that were useful that I might not have branched out into. Otherwise, I know you told me that one of the stories of mine that you'd read uh, to, to get ready for this uh, was uh, Sig Goddess, Sigma to the Stars, which I actually wrote in like week four of of, of Clarion, right? So like that that felt good. I mean, that felt <laughs> like like I was like doing something better than I'd been doing before. I could see how that could have been the product of sleep deprivation because the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the premise is that there's these humans and they've been conscripted to fight for these spider-like aliens. And then they, um, they end up sort of uh, mutinying and killing their spider alien uh, commanding officer. And then they've heard that these spider aliens flesh has hallucinogenic properties. So they decide they're going to snort it or something and and see what happens. So yeah, I could see that being a a week four Aquarian story for sure. Fair enough. 
Um, I have. I think these are your. If I have the right years, your instructors sure. were like Paul Paul Park, Maureen McHugh, Ian McLeod. Is, is that right? Uh, yep, those were three of them. So yeah, Paul and Maureen were week one, weeks one and two, uh, and uh, there was. Uh, it's like Nell Hopkinson, Ellen Datlow, Werner Vinci. <laughs> That's it. Yep, you got it. So, so do does anything um, anything they said stick out in your mind, or kind of any uh, exp- uh, experiences or anything st- stick out in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, like, yeah, I mean, I think Paul was was a really good was a really good week one instructor, and he kind of did it in a different way. It was like, uh, like a little bit of a a you know, like mostly most weeks of Clarion. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward you know, workshop, right? I mean, everybody's turned in stories and every day, you know, you're spending your time going through the, the, you know, the stories that people, people have done. But since it was uh, week one and Paul's approach was that, um, you know, I thought, okay, well, look, you know, people, the stories that people had, like the thing you would otherwise do in week one is you'd workshop the stories that people had written as their like uh, submissions uh, to, uh, to the workshop. But his, his view is like, okay, this is stuff that you wrote months ago probably doesn't represent you know the, the sort of best of what you'll do over the course of the workshop and so he had people um go through a lot of uh of exercise like different kinds of writing exercises he had um uh he did a lot of reading out loud like anonymous stuff and you know and, and reading out loud things that were like kind of exemplars for certain kinds of good writing and that that week definitely sticks in my head very vividly and then i think um you know, I, I think Marine and you know, in week two, um, I, I think was also just very, um, yeah. I mean, I think I think she has. I mean, she's somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about prose style, and I think she was, you know, she was really good for that. So yeah, I think I think both of those first couple of weeks, you know, like are, you know, maybe because they were the first couple of weeks, you know. But I mean, like I think those are probably the kind of biggest thing that sticks in my head from you know, the instruction end of that summer. And then you, you had such a good time with now Hopkinson that you decided to do the stone coast MFA. So you could have even more now Hopkinson. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I actually, I actually did. Uh, yeah, she was my first, um, yeah, like she was only there for a little while while I was there. Uh, but, um, but yeah, she had, uh, she was, um, but that was definitely one of the, uh, you know, one of the draws of uh, of Stone Coast for sure uh, was that uh, was that Nala was there at the uh, at the beginning, you know, and I got to you know like have her you know have her as an instructor there again at the beginning, which was fantastic. And uh, there were also you know, but it was a good like as as far as like you know uh, genre fiction writers, I mean, like Stone Coast was 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 good for that. I mean, there was also, you know, James Patrick Kelly was there. Uh, the, uh, Kelly link was there. So, um, so yeah, you know, Stone Coast was really positive also. So w- were you thinking at this time, like I want to be a professional science fiction writer or like, were you thinking of being a professor or, or something else or kind of what were your, what yeah, were your goals so, at that point? Yeah. So at, at this point, my thought was that I, really wanted to write uh in 
you know, sort of a professional way, but also as I kind of looked around, uh, I it seemed to me that there were, when you got right down to it, there were very, very few people uh, who would consider to be professional writers who really that was all they did for a living. Right? So, um, like, in my experience, I obviously I know there are exceptions to this, whatever, you know, these were also, I'm, I'm reporting my, you know, impressions from a long time ago, but, uh, but yeah, in my experience, it seemed like most people that I knew or knew of who were, you know, quote unquote professional writers who, who weren't, you know, Stephen King, uh, you know, were either, um, Either they had like what it meant that they're a professional writer was that they had a day job teaching writing, uh, or they uh, or they had a day job that involved some other sort of writing, right? That the fiction wasn't really the you know only sort of source of income, or that they uh, legitimately the sort of only income they brought in was fiction, but they were married to somebody uh, with a more standard job, and uh, and so kind of like looking out at that landscape right you know like i and i should say i was already in graduate school you know when i started writing again uh but even though during those years i mean that's definitely where the sort of bulk of my passion was was for writing fiction i also thought like okay you know everybody who does this uh, practically right with with relatively few exceptions you know has some sort of day job uh you know and it's you know like you could you could do a whole lot worse than being a university professor and so you were studying philosophy, and yeah. part of the reason that I wanted to to talk to you is because we have a lot of interests. You know, like I'm also interested in politics and philosophy, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. two of my favorite authors are Philip K. Dick and H. P. Lovecraft. Oh and yeah. So, right. so I saw in your bio that, and it seems like there's a lot of. Um, I feel like a lot of people who are interested in philosophy are kind of, and and also interested in fantasy and science fiction and horror are kind of drawn to to Philip K. Dick and mm-hmm. H. P. Lovecraft in particular. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a, you know, yeah, that is a very old bio, but I, I do, I, you know, I do still like those guys a whole lot. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that, I mean, obviously in Philip K. Dick's case, uh, you know, he is like pretty directly and unabashedly uh, engaging with, you know, with philosophical topics, like very directly uh, quite a, you know, quite a bit of the time. Um and, you know, I, I actually, so my, um, so f- at Stone Coast, my, uh, they did what was called a third semester project where you didn't have to write like an academic thesis, but that was like one of the things you could do for it, right? Basically, you could write like a long academic paper or there were like all sorts of different substitute projects that people did instead of that. But I did, of course, being me, right? I did write an academic paper about it, and that was uh, that was about uh, Vallis, uh, and and it was like definitely a philosophy ish, you know, sort of uh, paper about Vallis. Because for anybody who's listening, you know, who's not familiar with that novel by Philip K. Dick, uh, it's uh, you know, like it was always one of my favorite books, and it's and I think what probably, I mean, I read it the first time you know, before I was, you know, certainly like studying philosophy, but the fact that I was so drawn to it probably has a little bit to do with that because in addition to the sort of usual Philip K. Dick stuff about sort of playfulness and ambiguity about what's really going on and reality and our knowledge of reality and all that good stuff. There's also, um, you know, in that book, I mean, there's also like 
a lot of very direct sort of characters sitting around, you know, sitting around arguing about philosophy, about the problem of evil and stuff like that. And, you know, combined with the sort of dark humor of the book and everything else, you know, that was something that, you know, I guess always spoke to me. Well, Rick, as both Philip K. Dick and H.P. Lovecraft, part of the conceit is that what you think you know about reality is just very unstable and could the floor could kind of drop out from under you at any moment. And it seems like, I mean, I, I never went as far in philosophy as, as you did for sure. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't really uh, understand uh, what your uh, uh, work involves, but it sounds like it was all this stuff about paraconsistent logic and things like that. That sounded like it might have some relationship to that kind of, you know, what is the nature of reality? How do we know what's real that you get out of those, out of that fiction? Yeah, for sure, right? So, like, in, in Lovecraft's case, um, there's all of this, you know, I mean, obviously some of the specifics are a product of the, you know, the time uh, that he's uh, he's writing in, but, like, you know, Lovecraft, you know, at some point, you know, read something about non-Euclidean geometry and it blew his mind and... Um, Decided to mention it in everything he wrote from there. From there <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, we... We do actually know, you know, from Einstein that the uh, that like the mathematical structure of like actually existing like physical uh, space time is uh, is non Euclidean. Uh, but like, I think what it kind of represents in his fiction, right, is the idea that there is this like weird alternate counterintuitive thing that's totally different from our day to day experience that could be like the real nature of reality sort of if you if you kind of scrub away this thin layer of of appearance and and of course in the case of lovecraft it's all about having this reaction of like disorientation and you know horror uh, at uh at that um which is you know which is also something that i mean there are definitely times in you know philip k dick that you know that do that too i mean he has the um you know, the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, you know, and that's, that's the, you know, that word Eldritch, right. I mean, it's obviously a Lovecraft word and that's, you know, that's on purpose. Uh, and, and that's, um, and, you know, in that, in that book, he's like playing with that reaction, uh, to a little, a little bit of the time. Right. Although I think in, in Philip K. Dick's case, you know, the, like, even though, I mean, the way you put it earlier was perfect, right. That it's about like sort of having the bottom drop out and, you know, kind of saying that you're completely wrong about how everything works. And I think in Philip K. Dick's case, it's usually less uh, horror, although that's certainly in the mix, as much as just sort of like confusion and, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, the the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch is probably my favorite Philip K. Dick book. Mm-hmm. I'd have to think mm-hmm. about it, but it's it's certainly one that really, really stuck with me. And I heard the story I heard was that he wrote it and then he never copy edited it because it scared him so much. He never wanted to go back and read it again. Uh, so that's that that definitely sounds uh, like a, like a Philip K. Dick thing. Uh, that you know, I mean, I I think I also remember so uh, you know that the uh, the man at High Castle that he like actually has some notes or wrote some scenes I think that are anthologized in. There's a book called like the it's just called like literary and philosophical essays or something like that by Philip K. Dick. And uh, that includes, I think, some, like a a little fragment that he had written for a sequel to Mad and High Castle. But I think one of the reasons, supposedly, he didn't do that is it it just like disturbed him too much 
to to be kind of immersed in the you know thinking about the Nazis and you know and all of that. Uh, and and I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I hadn't specifically heard that, but I wouldn't be surprised about the three stigmata of uh, Palmer Eldritch. I mean, I I think supposedly I remember reading years ago. Lawrence Sudan wrote a big thick biography of Philip K. Dick called Divine Invasions. And uh, in, in there, I think there's a claim that he kind of got the idea because of some, like this is before I think he had a serious drug problem. Like I think he just, um, like just some, you know, wacky 1950s prescription drugs he was taking uh, that he had like a hallucination of like a metallic face in the sky. And that's, that's what inspired that book. Yeah, it's it's been a while since I read Philip K. Dick bio stuff, but that sounds about right from from what I remember. Yeah, my all time favorite uh, Philip K. Dick uh, hallucination slash religious experience, by the way, is one in the uh, I want to say like the late seventies, uh, where um, uh, where he's. Uh, like there's like a giant like disembodied eye and the voice of God is telling him that, you know, he, he has to like stay clean and like not, you know, not use drugs. And he says, okay, just weed. And they said, you know, and, and God says, that's okay. That's not what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Okay. So let's talk about your, your, your short stories. Yeah, yeah, you, sure. you, you published like what about 20 short stories? Uh, uh, that sounds plausible. I don't, I don't remember exactly. Uh, huh. Um, but you, you stopped you, the, the, the most recent one was from like 2013 or something. Right. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been quite a while. I mean, mostly, so I will, so yeah, I mean, for a while, um, there was, yeah, I mean, for a while I was, uh, I was still working on, you know, still working on fiction, but I had like, I was, there was a novel that I was working on, uh, but then, uh, never, you know, uh, nothing ever quite came off and then I was like that that I since then uh I've been like every possible minute of writing time for you know for the last years you know has has been devoted to to nonfiction so uh so I haven't but yeah they have a between like 2000 and uh I mean I guess technically the first short story sale was I mean, it was just super small magazine, but that was like fall 2005. And then the last one was probably something like 2013. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm in a very similar situation because, you know, I started this podcast in 2010 and then my short story writing fell off precipitously uh, shortly thereafter because this takes up so much time. Um, but it was, uh, it was cool. I mean, like, so I, I think the story of yours that I read that I liked the best, it's called smokestacks, like the arms of gods. Yes. And, um, and a lot of your stories sort of involve kind of like Russian revolution style situations. Do you want to talk about like, like there was that one and also, um, uh, after October and like jazz men improvising in a smoky club, all sort of deal with these revolutions. Can, so can you talk about kind of how, like why sure. that theme appeals to you? Sure. So, yeah, the smokestacks like the arms of gods uh, was so the title comes from Bruce Springsteen's uh, song Youngstown, uh, where there's a line in there about smokestacks rising up like the arms of God, uh, and if, and it's what the story is essentially is it's like kind of a fantasy world remix of 
uh, something roughly along the lines of like the the big sort of sit down strikes that built the in you know CIO unions in the 1930s, uh, which is you know a bit of um, so like my uh, you know my great grandfather Morris Field uh, Moshe Blumenfeld pre uh, uh, you know uh, immigration to the United States uh, was a, was a UAW organizer in that era. You know that's always something I was sort of vaguely aware of. Uh, and, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, in general, I mean, I've, I've, I've had, um, you know, leftist politics since before I, I, I started writing and like those have always, you know, always been strong interests of mine. And those have definitely, you know, come out, you know, I mean, this is, as I said, I mean, you know, part of the reason that I'm not, you know, writing short stories now is, is that, you know, most writing that I do now, you know, on a, you know, is like at like Jacobin magazine. Right. So that's the, uh, the, you know the politics have stayed uh, have stayed pretty consistent, uh, and it's um, and so yeah. I mean, I think that one, uh, which was uh, yeah, it was originally published at uh, Podcastle, which is this, uh, uh, which is a fantasy uh, like short story podcast, uh, and then it was actually reprinted at uh, Jenny, which is the uh, uh, is or was, I don't know, you know, it's been a long time, but the like literary journal at, uh, Youngst- Youngstown state. Uh, so, uh, which they obviously, you know, liked it because of that connection. Uh, and I should also say, you know, in terms of the family history part that, you know, my, you know, my mom grew up in Youngstown at the, um, you know, at the time when, when it looked like, uh, <laughs> you know, something out of a dystopian movie in a different way. Cause it was, you know, cause like everything, you know, cause, cause the, uh, the steel mills were just pumping grime into the atmosphere all the time, every day. And like everybody, you know, it was like living there was like smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. Uh, and then, if, you know, we go there pretty regularly to visit like my grandparents there at a time, you know, when I was growing up when of course it had the opposite problem, you know, that the, the mills had closed and it was like, um, you know, it, it looked like a different kind of dystopia, something more like RoboCop, maybe. Uh, and well, let me just explain. So, in the story, there's this factory. It's and it's like in this fantasy world where there there's humans fighting goblins, and there's they have some sort of winged monsters as, as the guards at the factory. And so, it's kind of this interesting juxtaposition of these familiar fantasy elements with the idea of of like a factory and a strike and and those kind of things that you, you don't really see characters going on strike so much in in fantasy novels typically. Yeah, no, you you definitely uh, you definitely don't. Uh, I think that it's. Uh, in fact, I think that if if anything, I think a lot of fantasy, um, a lot of fantasy fiction is sort of about either kind of, um, and obviously these are incredibly broad generalizations, but still, like I think some very familiar types are either about sort of like high politics within, uh, you know, within feudal systems or, um, or sort of essentially upward mobility stories, right. You know, that the, uh, you know, about, about somebody from, you know, from humble backgrounds, uh, you know, rising, you know, rising the social ranks of their society and then collective struggle, I think is something you definitely just don't, um, you just don't get a lot, you know, in, uh, in that, uh, in that medium or for that matter, really in science fiction, although you see it more there, but, but even still not that much. 
so so yeah, it's and, and that one definitely you know reflects um, you know reflects all of those interests. And as I've sort of indicated, there's a lot of family history stuff that ends up in that one. There's also, by the way, there's a uh, uh, you know there's like a little detail that in that story uh, about um, somebody who's a uh, who's a military officer who realizes that his sealed orders he can like break open the seal and then um, use like a candle to like melt it back down and then use the, uh, the button with the military insignia on his coat to uh, reseal it, uh, which uh, I was once told, I, I won't say who, uh, but in a, uh, in a workshop was an unrealistic detail because it was so, uh, it, you know, it was so ridiculous that like it's such an obvious hole in the system, but that actually comes directly from my, um, uh, other grandfather's experience in World War II. So uh, as, uh, as recently as the 1940s, the U.S. military uh, did, in fact, have that exact uh, have that exact hole in their system. Could I ask you, so um, Smokestacks Like the Arms of Gods was apparently the first original story that Podcastle ever published rather than yeah. reprints. I was just curious, how did that come about? <sighs> right. How did that come about? Um, you know, it's funny. I think I'd actually... I think that I hadn't realized that they were. Uh, <laughs> you like, just submitted it. Yeah, not I realizing just, it was a yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just submitted it, and I didn't realize that they were like just exclusively doing reprints. In fact, I think I remember scenes. This is long enough ago that I saw that you know that this was like Rachel, the editor. This was like her live journal or something. Uh, that this is that that dates the uh, the era when all this happened. But uh, I think I saw. Like the, you know, I think I'd submitted it, and I think a while later I saw on her blog, she'd like she posted something about how she didn't understand why people kept submitting, <laughs> uh, you know, unpublished stories because it's like really just a reprint market. I was like, oh well, I feel dumb now. And then like the next day, I got a I got an email from her saying, okay, but we'll take this one. So you know, uh, that that was nice, but there's there's no strategy involved there whatsoever. <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's talk about your nonfiction books. Yeah. So there's one called Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. There's Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. And one called Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Um, so I guess let's start off with the Canceling Comedians While the World sure. Burns. So why did you write that book? Uh, extreme frustration. So I I mean, yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, like the uh, – uh, I, I mean, the – much more so than the title of anything else I've ever read. It. I mean, that title itself is 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 kind of a, uh, you know, it's it's sort of an effort to you know grab people by the collar and be like, no, seriously, you know, <laughs> like let's stop stop doing this stuff. You know, it's a it's a little bit of a middle finger, but uh, it's essentially uh, there were a whole series of incidents that convinced me that a lot of people who shared my political commitments who you know had basically the same goals that i i did who you know want society to change in the same ways that i do uh had kind of fallen into this strange unhelpful moralistic way of seeing politics that is uh in practice um i think much too much about kind of um policing individual virtue or signaling individual commitment uh, in ways that I think uh, I think make it unnecessarily hard for us to, um, you know, to appeal to a lot of ordinary people who, 
you know, might otherwise be drawn to a left-wing program. So the book, you know, and I think a fair criticism of the book is that it's like biting off a lot of different subjects, but I think that, you know, in a sort of very quick way, but I think that like what all of those different subjects have in common to me from my perspective is that they're all sort of symptoms of the same pathology. It's the same kind of tendency to make uh, left-wing politics less a matter of, of meaningfully trying to change the material world and more a matter of performing individual commitment and sort of morally evaluating other people as individuals. Yeah, I, I thought the the book was really good. And I'm really I'm really concerned about cancel culture. It seems really bad to me. And just to explain what I mean by that, I just mean, you know, people who have um, you know, done ordinary level bad things or maybe who mm-hmm. have done nothing wrong at all. And mm-hmm. this sort of technologically empowered mob comes for them and really makes their life miserable and makes people afraid to associate with them, even people who don't think that they did anything wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, That just seems like a huge problem to me and just very obviously bad. But there's, like you say, there's a lot of people who just say, oh, cancel culture, it's not real. It's like just consequences and blah, blah, blah. And I thought you made, oh, and they also say like, oh, it's not that bad getting canceled. Like, you know, the people, they're they're all just fine. And I, I totally disagree with that, but I thought you made a really good point in the book, which I, I don't remember ever seeing anyone make explicitly before, but you say like, okay, by that logic, if you think that being canceled isn't that bad or, or doesn't, you know, isn't that a, effectual, this is something that like, it makes everybody hate us so much. And <laughs> if you also think it's not working, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't inconvenience the targets anyway. Like, why not just stop doing it? Like, you know, it's, it's just so overdetermined at that point to, to just not do it, to not, um, you know, shout down speakers or try to get comedy specials pulled or, uh, you know, yeah, just, just yeah, all these no, things like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if it doesn't actually have any benefits uh, and it, it has this clear downside, that seems like a pretty easy calculation. I'd also point out that there's this weird tension between two things that people often say both of, which I think you both you know, you accurately summarize both of them just now, which is on the one hand, uh, we're talking about accountability and consequences. And on the other hand, it's not that bad. It's like, well, okay, if it's not that bad, you know, I mean, maybe this is saying what you just said a different way, but if it's not that bad, there's, you know, where's the accountability and consequences come in? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the, the blurbs that really jumped out at me uh, from, from on your book, it's a, it's from Lee Phillips and it says, I just hope Burgess doesn't get, get canceled himself for writing this utterly essential book. I was just curious. Well, how do you feel about that? Do you worry about getting canceled yourself? Uh, not too much. I mean, I, I think that in a sense, like, um, I mean, a lot of people did uh, did get mad about the book. Although I will say it's pretty funny because, uh, from what I could tell, like ninety eight percent of people got mad about the book, never cracked it open. You know, they just, oh yeah, they, of course, of course, yeah. You know, they just kind of got mad at the title, the sort of general vibe they got of what the idea was. And one of the reasons I could tell that is that you know, uh, is that recently, you know, in a high profile interview, when I was saying some of the same things I said in the book, you know, like you know, two years later, you know, it's getting people getting mad about it. It's like, okay, well, come on, guys, you got mad about the the cover of the book two years ago. It didn't occur to you to check to see what was inside earlier? But yeah, a little bit. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think part of the although I don't think I would have probably been inspired to write in the first place if I hadn't already sort of gone through a couple of rounds of that to sort of get that visceral frustration. Yeah. 
Um, and then I actually guess the next thing I want to ask you about, this is actually from the Christopher Hitchens book, but it's yep. not, it's not directly related to Christopher Hitchens, I guess, sort of, but, um, yeah. well, this is the, this is the quote you say, the veil separating long form articles from social media posts feels a little thinner every day, whether I'm reading 3000 words on why the Muppet show was in retrospect, extremely problematic or 5,000 words on why people who think the Muppet show was problematic or as bad as the East German secret police. I can't help but think that we need more Christopher Hitchenses. So, yeah, you want to just opine on this this general <laughs> yeah. op-ed landscape that we find ourselves in? Yeah, I mean, this is when I was finishing writing the, the Hitchens book, which, uh, you know, part of, part of why I was interested in writing that is that, you know, he, he wrote and argued and sort of found himself involved in polemics and debates about a lot of subjects that I'm very interested in, but also something that... Uh, something that really hit me, you know, when I was writing that is like, man, Christopher Hitchens wrote for Slate. Uh, that's kind of hard to imagine now that the that sort of level of of substance and you know, frankly, just good writing, you know, uh, <laughs> in that uh, in that context. Um, and and yeah, I I think that the sort of I think there are a lot of reasons. I think some of it has to do with the economic collapse of traditional media. Uh, and, and a lot of it has to do with the sort of strange way in which a lot of the stuff gets disseminated that, you know, people are, you know, people aren't even really, I mean, some people do, I'm sure. Right. But like increasingly lots of, you know, people aren't even necessarily like going to slate or whatever to see like, Oh, you know, what is this writer I follow say this week? Uh, they're just sort of, seeing stuff floating around their social media feeds and uh and clicking on it um and so things are written for that and also because the economic collapse you know people have to write a lot very quickly uh and and i think the effect of that is uh i think the effect of that is not great i think that the i think um i think that like you're just going to get better writing more interesting writing more you know uh better arguments uh based on a little bit more time to reflect and a little bit more of an assumption of an audience that is uh is is going to kind of you know take a minute with what you've written and not just form a snap judgment about it well with, with this this muppet show is extremely problematic thing specifically i i really like that example because it just seems like increasingly you have two options like two flavors you can get the people who are going to say everything is problematic no matter what or the people who are going to say nothing is ever problematic, no matter what. Yes. <laughs> and this is just completely, it's like having, you know, it's like if you went to the drugstore and there's like two pregnancy tests and one always tells you you're pregnant and one tells, <laughs> never tells you you're pregnant. Because it's like completely worthless as a pregnancy test. You know, you, the, the whole point of, you know, commentary is that it conforms to reality somehow. And so, you know, you want someone who's going to call balls and strikes, you know, who's going to say this is yeah. problematic and this isn't. And if you know ahead of time what they're going to say, like, what is the value of that at all? I was just, as you were saying that, all I could think is that sounded like a, a detail from a Philip K. Dick novel that they would actually yeah. <laughs> have this pregnancy test, right? I could just imagine the dialogue between the man and the woman in the novel about, you know, it's like, no, I got the one that said, you know, you're always pregnant. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, kind of parallel to something I say in Canceling Comedians in the opening chapter, which is the, you know, the one that's actually about comedy about how the culture war has been terrible for uh, for stand up comedy as an art form right because uh you know whether you're doing um 
whether you're doing the sort of, you know, Hannah Gatsby style, like clapter, right. You know, that you're, you, you sort of want to be commended for your moral virtue as much as inspire laughter, or you're doing the sort of like cheap pandering. You can't tell a joke anymore stuff that like, frankly, even a lot of really good comics uh, do a lot of now, uh, either way, it's really bad for it. I mean, right. I mean, like it's, it's going to be, I don't know. I always think like, you know, Norm MacDonald is probably like the better positive model here. Like, I just can't imagine him reacting one way or the other, you know, in the in, in within the set to uh, whatever anybody had uh, had said about it, because that would like break character too much. But yeah, no, I, I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think it, it's like if you're pandering to one side or the other of the you know cultural forever war, then like it's it's just not going to be conducive to saying anything very insightful or memorable. Yeah. I also want to uh, mention this. This is a quote from one of the books. You say, you say free speech concerns are legitimate when cancel culture intersects with a semi-feudal structure of largely non-unionized American workplaces or the silencing powers of the corporate oligarchs who control so many tech platforms. And of course, this really jumped out at me this week because as we're recording this, uh, Elon Musk announced that he's going to try to do a hostile takeover of Twitter. And it's just been really interesting to see a lot of people who for years have been saying there are no free speech concerns with social media, they're private companies, they can censor whoever they want. Suddenly, this is like the end of democracy when someone who is going to be potentially censoring things that they like rather than that they don't like. No, exactly. Like I, you know, I mean, I certainly have nothing positive to say about Elon Musk. uh, And I, and I don't think that a good long-term solution to, um, problems with the free speech norms in this like weird privatized public square is is hoping that the right billionaire is is running it you know who'll make wise and benevolent decisions but uh i i do think it is incredibly revealing the reactions to the to the musk thing you know from people who um are yeah i mean this this the second they they suspect that somebody won't make the decisions they like you know it's it's not just uh it's not just that you know twitter is uh you know, Twitter is a private company. What are you talking about? Uh, you know, it's it's like no more free speech issue than, um, you know, whether the New York Times decides to publish an article or not. You know, suddenly I think people, I think, are showing that they actually do see the point about how, uh, you know, I mean, even though I think a lot of these people, what they think the norm should be are very different than what you or I think the norm should be. Like, they are at least showing that they get that this is something that is not just like a newspaper or, you know, it's, it's not just like, you know, the company bulletin board, you know, that it, it has, it has a wider importance for society as, as a whole and, and speech issues that are important. Yeah. And I think you really put your finger on something important with this, this line about the semi-feudal structure, because a lot of people would say, oh, cancel culture is not bad. It's just like people are just yes. whining about pe- being disagreed with. And it's like, that's not the problem. The, the problem is you have these institutions who will throw you under the bus the second that it's convenient, you know, that, it's, that, that you become inconvenient for them. And it's like, like, that's the problem. That's the, the point of failure is that, you know, you can lose your livelihood. You know, it's not just that you're afraid of someone disagreeing with you. Yeah, no, that I think that's exactly right. So they, uh, I wrote an article for uh, the Daily Beast about this like a couple of weeks ago, I think, called "What the Left Keeps Getting Wrong About Free Speech," uh, and you know, I, and I talk about this there. And look, I think even when we're just talking about stuff that people say, 
it does always feel a little bit like play a dub when people characterize sort of like, you know, vicious, like kind of uh, mob denunciation as uh, criticism. They're like, okay, guys, you know the difference between these two things. Everybody knows the difference between these two things. You wouldn't think it was accountability or consequence if you really didn't think anything was going on here except just being criticized. But even so, as you said, people saying mean things about you is just a completely different issue than losing your livelihood. I mean, like the you know, I, I've been, you know, I've lost jobs and I've had people say mean things about me and like, I'll always, I'll always take the second one, you know, over the, uh, over the first one, if, uh, if, if given an option. So yeah, I, I think that the, um, I think that this is a, this is a huge part of the, uh, the problem that, you know, most Americans work places that are at will. So they're, their employer can, you know, cut them loose at any time and really for almost any reason. There are a few narrow categories of exceptions that, you know, you're basically things you're not allowed to fire people for if you can prove that's what you're fired for. But certainly like having said something, like, you know, having made some comment online that creates a PR problem for your employer is not on that list. So and and I mean I know from reading your books that you're you're in favor of getting rid of this semi-feudal structure of yeah. the American workplace. And so is that really the only real solution to preserving free speech is to make it so that you you're going to have some sort of reasonable livelihood no matter how unpopular your views are? Yeah, right. So I would say like at the very at the very least, right? I think if you're going to have real free speech that's protected against these kinds of workplace sanctions. I think at the very least you need uh, a rebuilt and much more expansive labor movement. Uh, so if you at least have a unionized workplace, you know, it's like, uh, it's like what Henry Hill says in Goodfellas about being a main man. It's not, they can't, it's not that they can't still whack you, but they need to sit down at a good reason. Uh, and so, you know, you can be fired, but then, you know, they need to sit down at a good reason. Uh, and so I think that's really important. And I also think, I mean, look, we could argue about sort of longer term dreams about, you know, how sort of deeper forms of social change that I would certainly support as a socialist. But, uh, but I, I also think in a really tangible way in the sort of imaginable, graspable near future, there are also a lot of small things that we could do that would decrease the sort of level of power that employers have, over most people's lives, like even things as simple as as having um, moving towards a you know Canadian you know single payer you know healthcare system, uh, I think could make a huge difference there. Because right now, I mean, everybody I talk to, like they don't have to be a political person, right? You know, but it's like everybody I know who has a job that they hate and who you know who isn't going anywhere right you know who has thought about doing something else with their lives but they're just not doing it it's like always on the list that like what are the reasons they're not is they're afraid of losing their health care yeah so so in the book you say that sort of your sort of ideal society or at least sure. something you would seriously consider is you say it's sometimes called fully automated luxury communism and is this pretty similar do you think to the sort of star trek post scarcity kind of society or is it is yeah it no it's no I think I think that's exactly right. I think that like, you know, so I think that what's what's called fully automated luxury communism. Yeah, that's I mean, yeah, roughly Star Trek, right? I mean that they have a that nobody is, uh, you know, there's clearly no material scarcity, right? You know, you've got the uh, uh, the you know the replicator, you know, that you could uh, that you can get stuff from uh, other than the 
you know, other than Starfleet, you know, which is like a sort of weird, you know, militaristic hierarchical holdover, you know, it seems to be a pretty non hierarchical society. Uh, yeah, that, that, that seems like, that seems like that, that would be the sort of like, you know, like the sort of like, look, if I could just get everything that I wanted magically, right, we could wheel away not only political obstacles, but also like logistical obstacles, like we don't know how to do some of that stuff yet, then yeah, it would be like that. Now, realistically, do I think that we could have that tomorrow? No, of course not, right? I mean, for one thing, I think that the level of technology that they have for that kind of future doesn't exist right now. But I do think it's useful to have something like that in mind as a sort of like extremely long-term horizon that you could use to kind of at least compare, you know, different sort of points along the way and see what counts as closer or further away. Because I think this is, so this has come up on the show a couple of times, but I think this idea is really interesting that, you know, that, that you had, you know, like in the Soviet Union, they tried to do a command economy and it just didn't work. And that a market economy is better because sure. there's sort of more information being spread mm-hmm. and it doesn't require a central planning office to know everything that they can't know. But then the idea is, well, wait, if you had some super advanced AI could a super advanced AI run a command economy better than a market economy? Because it would sort of level the playing field in terms of the information being spread around, but it would also have, it wouldn't just be sort of the, uh, the vagaries of, of capitalism, but it, it could be directing things for everyone. The AI could be directing society for everyone to flourish. Yeah. I actually just wrote for current affairs, a review of a uh, novel by Francis Bufford, which is about exactly this. It's called red plenty, uh, which for anybody who's not familiar with it, it, I mean, it came out several years ago, but I just wrote this review essay about it for current affairs. It's, uh, which is a, uh, you know, it's not a science fiction novel. I mean, it's, it's just a sort of literary historical novel, but it's about a attempt that was really made right by certain Soviet computer scientists and like the Khrushchev era, right? Like the sixties to, uh, to, to kind of think about how something like this would work and, you know, and and kind of try to, you know, implement some version of it in the, the Soviet economy that, uh, you know, in other words, sort of outsourcing certain decisions that would be made by platters to, um, you know, algorithms, um, and, you know, in the novel, you know, I mean, in the novel, I think he hints at some reasons why at least the version they had in mind might not have worked as well as they thought it would. I mean, it ends up getting kind of like the idea ends up getting kind of bureaucratically squelched anyway. Uh, and I, and I go into this, the review, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't see any reason to rule that out. Right. I mean, like, I, I think that the only honest answer right now, about how far future technological progress could change, could like take us in that regard is we don't know. Uh, in terms of, but I would say that in terms of like right now, if you're just like, okay, if we could will away just the political obstacles, but not the logistical ones, like what could we have, you know, right now, like five minutes after capitalism, you know, without waiting for, you know, AI to get that good. Um, I think that, uh, I, I think that one thing, Two points I would make about this just really quickly are one, I think that there are I think the experience of of actually existing social democracy, you know, your your Swedens and Norways and Denmarks, um, show that even if we don't know how to have an efficient economy that's entirely planned outside the market, uh, there are you know, we we do actually know how to have an economy with much bigger sectors that are planned outside the market than anything we're familiar with, like certainly here. 
uh, that, you know, I mean, like healthcare is an obvious case, you know, like I, you know, I, I think there are, I think there are like, you know, I think you could take, you know, bigger chunks of it outside of the market if we're not really talking about like consumer goods without running into some of those Soviet style problems. And then the other thing is, okay, let's say you do still need a market sector while you're waiting for the technological singularity to happen. Um, and I would say, okay, but does it have to be a technology? It doesn't have to be a market sector with like regular, you know, capitalist corporations like we have right now. I mean, at the very least, could we have, you know, worker cooperatives, you know, and I, and I think that like the experience of like Mondragon in Spain, uh, which is a, you know, very big, very successful federation of worker co-ops in the Basque country of Spain makes me think that there's like more room there that I think we sometimes acknowledge in these discussions. Yeah. Um, all right. So I'm going to, I have one uh, criticism for your books. Sure. Let's do maybe, it. maybe potential criticism. I'll, I'll be curious to hear your response, but so, so you say, you know, one of your, this is, um, you know, one of your problems with the left, you say, uh, is you say, a left that only knows how to shame, call out, privilege check, and diagnose the allegedly unsavory motivations of people who disagree with us will lose a lot of persuadable people. And and this is one of the things that I that, that really does sort of bug me is is this sort of mind reading where you're like, oh, I, I know that this person is not just somebody that I disagree with or, you know, has a different model of the world or different yeah. priorities or something, but I, I know that they're malicious and uh, insincere in, in what they're saying. Yeah. And, and so, so, and, and so it, it seems, it struck me a little odd in, in, in some of your books, sure. how, how you refer to some of these people that you disagree with. I'll just, and this is funny, but I'll read some of the, the sure, list. Sure, sure, sure. As a, a toxic propagandist, a reactionary blowhard, reactionary <laughs> buffoons, a pair of ghouls, a rather odious right-wing hack and a right-wing propagandist with very little interest in honest journalism. And I'm just wondering if you think like, what is yeah, your, what sure, is the strategic I, value of, of those kinds of descriptions? Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think some of those, of course, individual judgments uh, as you're reading them, I remember who I said them about, and I think I would defend, but I, I do take your more general point, right. That the, that like I, I have, um, you know, I, I think, like, I try to, you know, I try to be generous within a broad range, but, like, there are, you know, there are certain figures who I don't try very hard to be generous about, right? <laughs> and I have a, uh, uh, and, you know, I mean, like, like you know, Tucker Carlson is the, is, is, the, is the person, the first of those I remember applied to. And yeah, maybe, you know, maybe there's some legitimate room for criticism there. I mean, I think that they, um, you know, I, again, I think you have to evaluate it like a little bit, um, a little bit case by case. And I also think context matters like in the, um, you know, in the case of the Tucker Carlson um, dig at, you know, that you're quoting at the beginning of that list, the context of that is, um you know, it's from canceling comedians and it's, and it's sort of the, the project there is definitely like intra-left criticism, right? You know, here's what I think the left is doing wrong. And so, you know, I think there's probably a little bit of an instinct when I start talking about uh, Tucker there to just be like, yeah, yeah, I don't like this guy either. That's not my point. Right. You know, cause, uh, cause I was talking about uh, the, the context of that passage uh, was, um, was about um, was about these clips that he had played on his show from the 2019 uh, DSA convention, 
And, you know, and part of the point I make is like, look, I, I mean, this guy clearly has an agenda, you know, he's, and you could accuse him of cherry picking, you know, the worst moments, et cetera. These were all fair criticisms, but also this isn't made up and we need to talk about why people are acting this way because uh, it's misguided. And so in that context, it's not, it's a criticism that's very much addressed not to Tucker Carlson fans, uh, but to other leftists, and it's and, and I think that is a little bit of a yeah yeah I don't like him either. But let's talk about the thing itself. Uh, so you know, in that context, I think it might be a little bit more defensible. Also, you know, I think Tucker Carlson really is very bad. Uh, now that said, uh, is it possible that you know I I think just because sometimes in the moment, like it's. Um, like if I've like immersed myself in like what some extremely right wing figure says, or like I have just watched this two hour debate, you know, about the death penalty. I think that was the pair of ghouls uh, comment uh, where where I'm I'm watching, you know, I'm I'm, I'm watching hours of these people defending uh, the state, uh, killing people who we might later find out are innocent, and you know, it'll be too late since we don't have a way of bringing them back from the dead. And I'm I'm kind of letting my immediate like sort of visceral moral reaction to that color, the way that I write about them. Um, and that that might be a rhetorical mistake in some of these contexts. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's possible sometimes. I think, you know, I, I think there might be, you know, if nothing else, you know, like, you know, less is more sometimes when it comes to that kind of thing. And, you know, it's, uh, um, and even if, you know, even if the substance of the judgment is one that I'd stand behind, uh, you know, uh, sort of like, being quite that expressive about how much I don't, you know, I don't like them. Um, you know, even though I would make a distinction between sort of doing that to people who you basically agree with, but like, you know, you have sort of 10% of disagreement with versus somebody who's like on TV every day, trying to get, you know, old people who watch Fox news to be more afraid of, uh, of immigrants and homeless people. Uh, you know, I, I, I still think, you know, there are probably cases where you're right that, you know, might have been a better rhetorical choice to dial that back. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even saying like necessarily they're inaccurate or unfair, but just from a strategic when you're talking about people sure, who are potentially sure, persuadable, sure. you know, it seems like if I'd be more listening, I'd be more um, receptive to a message coming from someone who hasn't called me an odious hack. Than, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to I, I actually don't remember who I called an odious hack, but uh <laughs> You know, I'm not. Uh, I'm not trying to persuade. You know, I'm not trying to persuade. You know, like Tucker Carlson. Uh, but yeah, but I mean, I still take your point, right? Because like, it might. I mean, look. There's a as we're recording this on a Friday on Thursday night. There was a little, you know, Twitter tempest in a teapot about Chris Smalls, who's the main organizer for the uh, Amazon Union Drive in uh, in Staten Island, uh, going on Tucker Carlson's show to talk about it. And there are people who are upset that he did that. And I was not one of them. Right. I mean, I thought it was fine. Uh, and, um, you know, and certainly, you know, I mean, look, if you're Chris, if you're Chris balls, uh, uh, you know, who, and you're actually on there, I think probably, you know, even though you're not trying to persuade Tucker, you might be trying to persuade certain persuadable people in his audience. Probably your opening gambit is not going to be hello, Tucker, you odious hack, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. you know, so I, I, I do take the point there. I mean, the, the thing is the counterpoint would be that people come for the show, you know, and this is one of the points you make in the Christopher Hitchens book is that people paid attention to Christopher Hitchens because he was entertaining. And like he called mother Teresa, a thieving fanatical Albanian dwarf. 
Yes. And George Galloway called him a drink-sodden former Trotskyist Popinjay. Yes. And that, that attracts attention. So, I mean, you could argue, you know, well, whatever, um, whoever I alienate by insulting people, I'm doing more good by attracting attention, which is going to get my message out there. I mean, you could argue that, and I think there's going to be some truth to that, but I also think you could easily take that way too far uh, because, and, you know, I mean, I think about this because I'm somebody who I'll do, you know, public debates, for example. And, you know, it's not like, obviously there is a element I'm very aware of, of entertainment, right? I mean, that, that, you know, to people watching something like that, uh, and, um, and, you know, you, you want it to be striking, but also I think that we kind of have enough of the kind of public debates that you get when people are only thinking about that, right. You know, that they, you know, cause if you're sort of like always going for the jugular every 90 seconds and like, and, and, and it's sort of in that mode all the time, I, I think that you're not really going to get through to people. And so, you know, I mean, I think there's a way of being like forceful on the substance without, you know, without just relentlessly being an asshole in your uh, immediate mode of presentation. And, and I mean, in that context, at least, I mean, it's a balance that I do try to strike. Yeah. Um, all right. So this is this is super fun, but we're going to we're pretty much out of time. So we're going to have to start wrapping this up. So um, do you have any just uh, do you have any other projects you're working on or any sure. other things you want to let people know about? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, the so the main project that I'm working on right now has to do with the discussion we were having uh, earlier, kind of about planning and what kind of socialism might be possible at what time or whatnot, which is a, a book that I'm co-writing with Bhaskar Sankara, who's the editor of Jacobin, and our friend Mike Beggs, who's an economics professor, uh, which, uh, because Bhaskar is a Jay-Z fan, it's called The Blueprint. Uh, but it, it is, uh, it, it's basically about what a sort of realistic social society might look like. Again, that's for Verso books. It's probably not going to be out for, you know, I mean, at best, like late 2022, but, you know, but that is, uh, that is in the works. Do you think you'll ever write any more fantasy and science fiction or you've kind of, uh, yeah. Stuff? yeah, I'd like to, I mean, I think about it a little bit now, you know, just cause it's just cause like, it's sort of, you know, there's a little bit of the grass is always greener thing, you know, that like if yeah. you're sort of trying to get yourself to work on whatever you're supposed to work on, I give it a moment. It's like, man, I haven't written a short story in a long time. That'd be fun, right? Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, ideally I would like to go back and write more fiction at some point. I mean, right now, like the nonfiction writing commitments like take up kind of more time than I have. But like, you know, at, at some point in the future, if I ever felt like I had a little bit more of a time balance, I think that actually might be fun. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd love to see more fiction from you because, like I said, this the smokestacks, like the arms of gods, I thought was really terrific, and it's online if anyone wants wants to check it out. It's a, the Podcastle podcast, so definitely recommend that. But uh, yeah, we are all out of time, so let's wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Ben Burgess about his books, "Give Them an Argument," Christopher Hitchens, and "Canceling Comedians While the World Burns." So, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Ben Burgess for joining us on the show. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. 
So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.